You can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14 is what we'll be looking at this morning. We talk about coming before God in, in worship with reverence and awe. He is holy, he's majestic, he is worthy to receive our praise, and yet we are sinful, we're defiled and unworthy in and of ourselves. And so the first thing we need is the cleansing blood of Christ to make us worthy. Then we need the enabling work of the Spirit to empower our worship. And when you have both, you will engage in worship with your whole being. So the question I want you to consider as we read this passage and as you sit under the preaching of God's Word is, do you worship? You think, well, of course I do. I'm here. What else is this? What what do you call this? But as we've said, you can be here. You can be present and not engaged in worship. You can read the Bible and not read the Bible. Your mind can be elsewhere. So the first question is, do you worship? Are you currently worshiping? Will you continue to worship? I hope this passage will will help you answer those questions. As he wrestled with them, John is receiving a vision of the throne of God in heaven. And it's meant to be revealed to the church as a means of significant trials of persecution. It was meant to encourage them. And so the Lamb is worthy to execute God's eternal plan because he alone was able to satisfy God's legal demands. We looked at that last week. This idea that the Lamb alone is worthy to carry out God's eternal plan because he satisfied God's law, God's legal demands. Jesus, upon ascending to the Father after his death and resurrection, received authority. And we concluded the passage last time in verse 7 with that. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He he takes the scroll, in a sense, he's, he's not only declaring his worthiness to receive that role of, of taking the scroll and opening it and breaking its seals, but of executing the judgments and the work of redemption that, precede, that, that follows, that is read and contained in those scrolls or in that particular scroll. So what is in the background here is, is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, as well as 13 and 14. You have this also vision that Daniel received. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels like burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and sorry, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Very parallel thought there. Going on later on in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So some of that language we'll see very clearly in the passage we read today. So this is in the background, Daniel chapter 7. If you get confused, you go back to Daniel and you read that passage, you see the parallel thoughts there, that the son is receiving dominion. He's receiving authority. We've seen some of this language um, already. We'll see it again in Revelation. As I've said, Daniel is the primary uh, book in the Old Testament that is alluded to by John in the book of Revelation. We've said that there's only something like two Old Testament books that aren't at least alluded to at some point in Revelation, but Daniel is the one that, that receives the, the greatest amount of allusions. And so we'll continue to see this uh, language will be brought into the heavenlies as it were. And it's clearly the, the, in the background of John's mind as the Spirit inspired him to write this vision down for us. And he, he was well-versed in the Old Testament. He understood that old, those old, the Old Testament passages that were relevant to the vision he was seeing. And as he had a hard time understanding how to articulate this himself, as he's looking at this, language of Daniel comes to mind, language of Ezekiel comes to mind, language of the scriptures of God's word comes to mind as the Spirit inspires him to write this vision for us. So the hymns that, that conclude chapters four and five help us to interpret the vision. Right, it's in chapter four, God is worthy to receive praise because he is sovereign in creation. And in chapter five, Jesus is worthy to receive praise because he is sovereign in redemption and judgment. This, this passage reflects uh, upon the various segments of, of heavenly praise that engage in the worship of the Lamb. So the praise that begins with this inner circle of four living creatures and 24 elders praising the Lamb of God extends to the outer circle of this myriad of angels, and then it concludes with all of creation joining in the chorus. And so it, the throne remains in the center. The Lamb has, has now ascended to the throne where he's taking the scroll, and now everyone in a chorus kind of... Uh, in, in, it, it goes from the central location, those nearest to the throne begin worshiping, and then a chorus joins in with a, this myriad of angels, and then outside of that, it's all of creation joining in, so all modeling for us worship. Why did the Holy Spirit breathe out this account for us? What is, what is God teaching us through this vision? It seems fitting to receive examples of heavenly worship in order to deepen our understanding and our own practice of earthly worship. It's meant to help us in our own practice of worship. So this passage teaches us how to give praise to the Lamb for who He is and for what He has done. And so before we read it, let's ask the Lord for His help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, and it is a glorious vision that is meant to encourage us, to help us as we worship you. And even as we worship you now, sitting under the preaching of your word, Lord, open our eyes, give us ears to hear this truth, soften our hearts that we would respond to it in obedience, that we would rightly understand you, the only one who's worthy to receive our worship that we would better understand ourselves and our need to worship you. So Lord, comfort us by the gospel as we learn from your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. 
Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we've heard verses 12 and 13 every week that we've been opening up our call to worship, right? With, uh, as we've entered into our series in Revelation, we've chosen those verses as a call to worship, to recognize the worthiness of the Lamb to receive our praise. So as we work our way through this second half of chapter 5, I just have three points for you. If you're following along in your outline, the first one is worship is doctrinal. Worship is doctrinal. The prayers of of God's people are represented in verse 8 as the contents in the bowls of of incense that the 24 elders are holding. And I close every um, evening worship service with a benediction from Psalm 141, verse 2. And it says this, Let my prayers... Be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So you can imagine the sweet smell of aroma, this incense ascending to heaven as a, a fragrant offering that is accepted by God because they are offered in the name of his Son through the Holy Spirit. That is our, the, the prayers have this image of, of being pleasing to the Father pleasing to hear, pleasing to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, we offer our prayers, and they are received and accepted by God because they are offered in the name of the Son through the Holy Spirit. This is an encouraging truth to consider as we, as we stumble through and stutter through our own prayers. And I know if you're like me, praying can be hard. <laughs> praying can be difficult. And praying out loud is even more challenging because you know people are listening and so you, you get choked up and fearful and you worry about saying something incorrectly. Right, we, it's good to know that we have a, a permanent high priest who always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. And not only that, but when we don't know how to pray, when we don't know the words to say, We have the Spirit who intercedes 
for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. And so I love the illustration that Spurgeon provides of this concept. He imagines a child wanting to bring a bouquet of flowers to his father. It's Father's Day, so we'll roll with that. He wants to bring a bouquet of flowers to his father. So he goes out into a field and collects a handful of flowers and weeds. He just gathers them all up, and he brings them back home, and his mother meets him at the door. And she's looking at the collection, and she's, you know, kind of smiling, but she's also looking at it thinking it's, it's not so great. There's a lot of imp- imperfections in this bouquet. Um, and so before he goes to present it to his father, she pulls out all the weeds from the bunch, and she has a collection of nice, pleasant flowers that she inserts into it, makes the bouquet all the sweeter, and she gives it back to the child to then take to the father to present. That is what Jesus does. That is how he works to sanctify our prayers as they ascend to the Father, right, like a fragrant offering. What makes the aroma so pleasing to the Father isn't the eloquence of our speech. It's not because we've learned some really good words to use, some really good mottos and slogans to, to recite. It's because of the kindness of our gracious and compassionate Savior right, who takes our prayers with all their imperfections, and he purifies them so that they are made acceptable to the Father. In verse 9, the four living creatures and the 24 elders begin to sing a new song regarding the, the new age of redemptive history that has been ushered in by the Lamb. And this was a common practice for the saints through, throughout the Old Testament, right, to sing a new song to sing a new song whenever there was some new stage in redemptive history, beginning with their deliverance from Egypt. Upon crossing the Red Sea, Moses composes a song of praise recorded in Exodus 15. We see the same language in Isaiah 42, verse 10. You see several psalms that mention the phrase, a new song. So this is a new exodus. This is accomplished an exodus that's been accomplished by the Lamb through his death. And it is certainly grounds for singing new songs about it, right? Apparently, John and these heavenly representatives did not practice exclusive psalmody. That, I believe, is one of the strongest arguments against the idea that we should only sing the psalms. The good thing about just singing the psalms is you know that everything you sing is inspired. The problem with that is it's inspired in the original language, and we don't necessarily sing it originally as it's written, right? We kind of tweak some words so that it, so that it rhymes and flows better. I'm st- that's still a safe way to sing songs, right? To sing the psalms, and we encourage it. We are inclusive psalmists, right? We want to include psalms in worship, but we're not exclusive psalmists because the psalms don't have the full revelation of God. And you have new hymns being written, new songs being written here in Revelation that are, that are relevant to the church to sing because they contain the fullness of the gospel, And we can insert that idea back into the Psalms, and we should. We should read the Psalms in light of the gospel, right? But it's not actually in the language of the Psalms themselves, as it is here in the hymns. I'm sorry if that was confusing for you or a little soapboxy, but um, uh, I just, I think that's an important point to make, right? That, That they are, these are new songs being written, and they are not contained in the Psalms. They're not just reciting 
what you read in the Psalms. So just as God was worthy to receive our praise and adoration in Revelation 4.11, so the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. And the reason why he's worthy to take the scroll in verse 9 there to open the seals is because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was the blood that was shed upon his death that ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The blood is what purchased the people of God. And so in this way, Jesus can serve as our permanent high priest. It's because he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. So our prayers and our praise are dependent upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The doctrinal component of this verse is that the blood of Jesus actually ransomed people. It didn't simply make ransom possible. If you were here in Sunday school, you know we've been working our way through Romans 9. This is another example of the idea that God is sovereign in redemption. The ransom that Jesus purchased was accomplished. He didn't simply make redemption possible or salvation possible. He actually redeemed people in that work. This this means that the atonement of Jesus Christ was limited by the number he intended to ransom to himself. I know that's not a popular idea. The Reformed doctrine of limited atonement is biblical, though. Blood of infinite and eternal value would not be shed unnecessarily for those who would reject it. Jesus shed his blood for those he came to save. And so they sing what is doctrinally accurate in order to teach us about the worthiness of Jesus. Right? As we sing these hymns, we understand something about something more about Jesus and why he's worthy to receive our praise. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. Right? So it's what we believe about someone or something. Our worship must not only be God-centered, but it must also teach us something about him so that our minds are transformed by these truths. So that what we sing is actually penetrating our hearts and transforming us and changing us. The songs that we sing in worship are first and foremost evaluated for their doctrinal accuracy. That is the priority. We're not going to sing things that are out of accord with God's word. And we want to sing things that are consistent with the themes that we find in the hymns in Scripture, which are about God, not man. And I know there's some great songs on the radio. There's some good contemporary uh, songs that that we can enjoy and sing along to, but maybe they don't belong in, in worship. It's, it's not always appropriate to just take what sounds great and catchy on the, on the radio and, and throw it into a worship service. All right, we need to be careful. We need to, we need to 
understand, we need to evaluate the lyrics and make sure that they're consistent with God's word. Are they in accord with the revelation that we have here? Are they consistent in the thematic language? Are they, are they parallel with the devotional depth of God's word? Do they cause us to turn to him in his word, or do they cause us to turn inward on ourselves? Think about how great we are. Those are some of the questions we need to ask as we consider worship, and that's specifically thinking about music, the songs we sing. Worship is is not just limited to that, but that is really the topic here in Revelation 5. Secondly, we see if, if our worship is doctrinal, it will also be triumphant. In verse 10, worship is triumphant. That's the second point in your outline. Those who have been ransomed from every nation have become a kingdom and priests. This was the same description that was given of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So John associates with the, uh, Israel with the church universal here, and that, that, that we really are the fulfillment of that. We have become a kingdom and priests. It's not just a promise for Israel, it's a promise for the church, that we are now reigning with Christ. And there's some ambiguity here in the original text regarding the phrase, shall reign. Is it a future tense or is it present? Is it something that we are currently doing or is it a a future hope that the saints have? Well, it could be taken either way and the difference is is probably not as significant as some would want to make it, right? If If it is present, then the emphasis upon Christ's present reign through the church, right, as as we, we can turn to other passages to find the same idea that we are reigning with Christ even now. If it's a future reign, then it is a reference to the eternal reign of Christ with his people in the new heavens and new earth. And we'll see that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So if it's a future hope, it's a hope in the new heavens and new earth. If it's a present hope, then it's the idea that Christ is currently reigning through his saints as we pray to him, as we ask for him to accomplish his good purposes through us and through his people. So we are, we are ruling and reigning with him. And I think several points seem to favor that present tense reading. First of all, we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, past tense, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So there is a sense in which we are already reigning, and that's already been mentioned at the beginning of Revelation. Secondly, the, the hymn that we're reading here, is referring to a present tense worthiness of the Lamb who was slain to receive praise. So I think there's, a, there's room for recognizing an already and not yet component to this worship, to this theme. Right, the Lamb is presently worthy to open the book because he has already ransomed people for God. So in either case, what has begun in the present will be fully and finally fulfilled upon the consummation of Christ's return. So this reign could be a future reign in the new heavens and new earth or a present reign that is a taste 
of the final and full reign that will be enjoyed for all eternity. To the triumphant reign of the saints is, again, doctrinally expressed in this hymn. Martin Luther understood the importance of linking doctrine with our songs. He understood that if a reformation was to occur within the church, it was going to have to change the, the hymns we sing. Right? It was going to have to be infused into the songs themselves. And so he wrote many rich hymns. They were one of the means God used to reform the church in his day. And he wrote, uh, Luther wrote about, after elaborating on the beauty and value of music and the impact of music upon his own life, he wrote this. A person who gives some thought to this and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human, a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the brain of donkeys and the grunting of hogs. He loved music and he wanted everyone to love music. If our music is doctrinally accurate and filled with triumphant praise, and the only question left for us to ask is whether or not we follow the heavenly model in practice. Right, are we trusting in Christ as we sing? Are we recognizing that we have access because of the lamb who was slain? Has the blood of the lamb cleansed our impurities so that what we offer is originally not perfect, it's filled with imperfections just like our prayers, but it's made acceptable because it is offered in faith by the Spirit through Christ. So the blood of Christ continues to restore us for worship. So I want to encourage you, when we sing songs, be sure to join in loudly. You may not know the words initially, may not be familiar with the tune, Sing boldly, not because of the beauty of your tone, but because of the kindness of your Savior, who's going to take what you offer and perfect it. Our worship should express something of our awe in his redeeming grace. Well, in addition to worship being doctrinal and triumphant, lastly, verses 11 through 14 Worship is doxological, and doxology is just giving praise to God for who he is and what he has done. We oftentimes close our worship services by singing the doxology. We find several doxologies, the, the two hymns here in verses 11, uh, or verse 12 and 13 um, are doxological. And so this relates to all of the psalms and songs we find in Scripture. They're, there's, they're supposed to teach us about God and what he has done. So John saw and he heard a vast number of angels singing a hymn of their own to the Lamb. A myriad is, is 10,000. We read 10,000 in, in Daniel, which is an, uh, being alluded to here. So one myriad times one myriad would be 100 million angels surrounding the throne. And then it adds to that thousands upon thousands. Obviously, John didn't take the time to count each head. 
but we can imagine he couldn't see the end of this sea, this crowd of angels. The Lamb is worthy to receive praise, and, and they give their praise through seven different attributes, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. He's worthy to receive it all in this perfect sense, this complete sense. He could have added more, but they stop at seven because of that perfect number. And we've talked about that before. This is the third hymn with the theme of worthiness. Uh, The first was in reference to the one seated on the throne, and then the second and third refer to the worthiness of the lamb. So seven attributes are associated with the lamb, recognizing the fullness of praise that he is worthy to receive. If we had the time, we could take each one of those aspects, each one of those attributes, I would encourage you to do that, do a word study of each one, and see here that what is oftentimes describing God is here used to describe the Lamb. He's equating the two. This hymn teaches us something about the Trinitarian nature of God or the equality between the Father and the Son. Nothing in this world compares to Jesus. His, he is the superior expression of each one of these attributes. The power and the wealth of Babylon that they gain through self-promotion are nothing in comparison to Christ's wealth and power, which were attained through self-sacrifice. So after two hymns for the one on the throne and two hymns for the lamb, the concluding chorus in verse 13 is written to both him who sits on the throne and the lamb. Again, there's no distinction between the worthiness of the one who is seated on the throne and the lamb who was slain. The father and son are equal in power and glory. All of creation will join in the singing of this hymn at the consummation. That's our hope, right? That is our joy. That is what we have a taste of each time we gather. And so we should sing boldly and loudly every time we have the opportunity. Worship is doctrinal, it's triumphant, it's doxological. I wanted to conclude with this. Um, Remember in verse four, what we read there. John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. When there was anyone found worthy to take the scroll from God's hand, John wept loudly. Once the lamb had shown himself to be worthy, John saw and heard thunderous praise. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ turns our weeping into triumphant songs of praise. This was the message of hope that the early church needed to hear in order to persevere through the trials that awaited them. It's a message of hope that we need to hear in the light of our own trials. You may be enduring a trial even now. One of the commentaries I read is by Rick Phillips, and he was an assistant at 10th Presbyterian Church during the last years of ministry under James Boyce. And Boyce was preaching through this very section of Revelation when he got the news of his cancer that would take his life just a few weeks later. But immediately, he, his, his, he was unable to really speak or stand very long. And so he, gave, he stood up for his announcement 
um, and he wasn't going to, to be able to preach or speak at all beyond that. But he left them with a final word of encouragement that God is sovereign and good. He encouraged them with the doctrine that he had been teaching them all his ministry. And now he was putting into practice through his own trial. And after making the announcement and asking the congregation to stand for the opening hymn, Boyce set down his hymnal for the last time. And he began to, to walk to the back of the stage so that he could slip out behind the, the choir. And Rick Phillips was sitting there in a, a chair ready to preach. And so as he approached the door, as Boyce approached the door, he passed in front of Rick Phillips, who was struggling to keep his own, his own emotions together. Uh, I'm trying to give you a physical image, illustration of this. Uh, Boyce stopped. Uh, this is in Philip's own words. Boyce stopped, looked me in the eyes, grasped my arm, and smiling said, Press on, brother. Fight the good fight. He says, That's the message of Revelation 5. Right, let us press on in faith with the priestly work of worship, witness, and prayer for the sake of his kingdom of salvation here on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a glorious picture here in Revelation 4 and 5 of the throne room in heaven. It's, it's not a, a perfect image or display. Lord, it's, it's given to us in, in metaphor and allegory, and, and we have images that, that are, are meant to portray something of the, the sense of majesty and the sense of glory, but we don't have a perfect description of what you look like. And yet that doesn't take away from the privilege we have of worshiping you. Or that, that only magnifies your glory because it's indescribable. Lord, and it protects us protects us so that we would, we would use your word and your word alone to guide us in our worship. Lord, forgive us in any ways that we have gone astray in writing worship that isn't doctrinal, in writing worship that isn't triumphant or doxological, that doesn't teach us about you and what you've done. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we are delighted to have music that helps us to do that. And we know that for all eternity, we will enjoy that privilege as well. So Lord, continue to give us a taste of that as we respond in worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.